Welcome to Westminster Church. My name is Donald Meisel. I'm minister with my colleagues to and with this uh, downtown Minneapolis congregation. We began these uh, Thursday noon forums uh, just a year ago. And at that time, mind you, we thought we would be celebrating the completion of the extension of the Nicollet Mall. Oh well, we, uh, we try not to despair about that and the end result will be well worth the wait. Your response to our first six men and women of distinction who addressed concerns related to their fields from a keen ethical perspective led us to plan another series beginning with Neville Mariner's appearance today. Mr. Mariner is music director of the Minnesota Orchestra. At least that's how he's best known to us. And depending how you choose to look at it, he's either from just across the street or just across the Atlantic. He is the world's most recorded conductor, which I think is a remarkable statement to make. He is founder of the Academy of St. Martin's in the Field, London. And as we walked in today, I, I expressed the hope that sooner or later today he would tell us something in more detail about that. We are accustomed to Mr. Mariner's body English as he conducts the orchestra from the podium, and we shall hear him as he uses the King's English from this pulpit, and I know we're looking forward to that. Usually we watch him from the back. Today we enjoy him face to face. Having heard him speak through his music, we are now eager to hear him verbalize his convictions, convictions regarding Music International, that is, his perspective on the role of music and the arts in various societies, many of which he knows firsthand. Mr. Mariner, welcome. Thank you. This morning, I feel I'm being somewhat punished for not paying attention. I lightly accepted the opportunity to speak at Westminster, and I then, I think, envisaged a casual public gossip with 50 or 60 people. Perhaps a few intimate backstagey revelations, mildly titillating, would generate enough questions to last until one o'clock. Now I see the size of the audience plus the ubiquitous microphone. I realize that this is a serious forum and my lightest remark may become a public indiscretion. <laughs> the moral being, do your homework. Some years ago, my daughter graduated from her university bristling with honors in classical philosophy. To her amazement, the world outside Oxford and Cambridge was not lying in wait for her talents. And so, to alleviate her somewhat wounded expectations, she worked for my manager in London. For some six weeks, she responded to desperate cablegrams hysterical telephone calls, and nursemaided the most manic depressive of performers. She left her employment quite abruptly, thoroughly irritated by what she considered to be a permanent storm in a teacup. Why so much fuss, she said, about a few concerts, the odd record, a broadcast, a telecast. With political and economic struggles of such magnitude around us, why expend physical and emotional resources on what should be, after all, pleasure. Well, just a second. Do what I forgot to do earlier. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you. It was my turn to be irritated. For someone who'd worked at his profession since the age of five, this was a major put-down, but uh, something nevertheless that gave pause for thought. How important is music in the lives of those other than the creators or performers? What impact do musicians have on society? And should they be aware of their influence if they have it? 
Well, thinking back to my earliest days in England, my strongest impressions are of the, the dichotomy of provincial life. I was born in a cathedral town on the eastern side of England, Lincoln, spelt with the silent L. Because of the Roman times, it was Lindum Colonia. The cathedral, the third greatest in, in the British Isles, was High Church of England, with a choir of boys and men, but little musical quality. In the 16th century, William Byrd had been our music director, but that tradition had withered into some sort of banality in the 20th century. Perhaps an annual performance of Bach's B minor Mass or a fleeting visit from the Halley Orchestra was allowed by the dean and chapter. I don't know what your equivalent hierarchy are here. They're the bosses in a cathedral. Down in the town, the Methodists and the Wesleyans competed for musical supremacy. My father was choirmaster of the Methodists, and his Messiah and Elijah vied in the tussle of great amateur singers with the Wesleyans, Olivet to Calvary, and Sampson. Music, as an adjunct to their church-going, fulfilled their working lives completely. There was really little else. I suppose I progressed from provincial to metropolitan music at the end of the 30s, and this was culture shock number one. Whereas the joy of music in Lincoln had been just doing it in London at the Royal College of Music, it was not only performing it, but getting it right. And then to discover, having got it right, that still performances could be ineffectual. The missing ingredient, some element that failed to materialize, and the search for the physical mechanism and emotional chemistry that turns a performance into a memorable occasion was my prime objective. At this time in London, of course, bombs were falling and people drew much closer together for comfort. On successive days, I was part of the audience at a promenade concert at the old Queen's Hall, a concert incidentally that lasted all night and ending only when the raid was over, and at a recital by Myra Hess at the National Gallery. There were famous recitals. I don't know. Some of you may even remember them. They were perhaps my first intimations of the, the solace, the reassurance, and resolve that music can bring to large numbers of people at the same time. I also had my eyes slightly opened, I suppose, to the, the um, art, uh, which is somewhat covered by artifice there, Myra Hess, for those of you who ever knew her, was a grand old lady uh, by the time I heard her first. And a friend of mine was her page-turner. Very, very uh, nervous job, turning the pages for a, a soloist. And uh, he was somewhat alarmed to see suddenly at the bottom of the next page, look up, and he knew immediately that some great drama was about to be performed on the following page. So he leaned across and quickly flicked the page over. And to his horror, nothing happened at all. And he thought some disastrous, uh, I suppose, result of his turning over had forced the lady to stop. But not at all. At this moment, Myra, in fact, had her face looking for spiritual guidance above, uh, was in this position. And the look-up was the acting part of her performance at that time. So, Well, one is sometimes disillusioned. Nevertheless, from the war years in London, I retained a, an indelible impression of the attraction of formalized, orderly, musical presentations for a disorientated population, young or old. My first taste of cosmopolitan music was during my student years in Paris. The war was recently over, and I was somewhat restless with that Grassy's greener attitude to English teaching establishments. Anything should be better than those. I studied with Henri Benedetti, professor at the Conservatoire, a virtuoso violinist with all the accomplishments the French most admire. His playing had great charm, polish, and aristocratic presentation. But his lack of emotional commitment 
limited his interpretations to superficiality at best. Today, when I work with French orchestras, I really find little to change my earliest impressions. The audiences applaud extravagantly the well-mannered performances of their own rather tepid and uh, somewhat vacuous composers. In principle, they dislike Berlioz and are cool to Debussy. Extraordinary. Two towering but disturbing figures, very much ignored. They hiss and whistle at technical imperfection that is a sort of offence against the chauvinistic chic of their concert code. In short, concerts are for them recurring affirmations of the correctness and success of middle-brow aspiration in France. In the late 1940s, the great escape was to get to Switzerland. It was the only country virtually untouched in Europe by the war. Apart from the obvious material advantages, the concert halls and cultural institutions of Geneva, Zurich, Basel, and Lausanne were intact and flourishing. One of the surprising embellishments of Swiss culture was the Luzern Festival. It was founded in 37 or 38, I'm not quite sure which, by Toscanini and the Bush brothers, Adolf the violinist, and Fritz the conductor, as their gesture against the fascist elitism of Bayreuth and Salzburg. Most Jewish and liberal musicians congregated there to demonstrate their disaffection with Germany under its current rule. And there were not too many concerts featuring Wagner or conducted by Furtwängler, Böhm and Karajan. Nevertheless, it was almost as good as a denazification certificate to be invited to perform there after the war was over. Nowadays, the intensity has somewhat gone from the purpose of Luzern, and the other provincial orchestras in Switzerland have reverted very comfortably to their ethnic origins. The Swiss Romand in Geneva is French, and the rest are German. Italian culture appears to have made few inroads in Switzerland. Their particular brand of inspirational anarchy has stayed on their own side of the Alps. Uh, to work with an Italian orchestra is not quite as ludicrous as Fellini would have you believe in his movie, The Rehearsal, but their unmitigated individualism makes them perhaps the worst ensemble players in Europe. I think uh, the Neapolitan operatic tenor is their greatest contribution to music, although Vivaldi, Verdi and Puccini should not be lightly dismissed. I suppose one of the most potent examples of the power of music as a universal passion was for me in Dresden in 1950. As you can imagine, to be English-speaking in a city so devastated singled you out for considerable disregard, not to say blinding hatred. But to be a musician in their shattered concert hall was something quite else. The warmth of their ovation and response followed us through the streets to our hotel and continued long into the night. If we felt we needed forgiveness for any responsibility we may have had for their condition, they offered it in abundance. Germany, East and West, is still a cultural enigma for me. I love it, and I dislike it intensely. Of all societies, the Germans interpret music the most literally. The spiritual conviction of Bach, the forceful communication of Beethoven, the tyrannical philosophy of Wagner, all of these offer instant understanding in simplistic terms. All can be interpreted or misinterpreted according to the, the sincerity or the hypocrisy of their presentation. In Nazi Germany, Bach was considered almost spiritually a fate. So feeble was the church at that time. Whereas Beethoven's music was considered to be a militant assertion of national destiny. And Wagner, of course, represented the pinnacle of their aspirations. Nowadays, after the war, Bach is Germany's conscience, and Beethoven their intellect, 
and Wagner appears rather phoenix-like in his own festival. I work in Germany for most of my time in Europe. Berlin and Stuttgart are my headquarters, but I take the orchestra on tour to Munich, Nuremberg, Hanover, Bonn, Hamburg, Frankfurt, all the innumerable cities in Germany that boast a highly developed public participation in music. Their audiences cut across all levels of society, and the average age of that audience is perhaps the lowest in the world. Ample preparations for the continuing tradition that they've already established. I can prepare the orchestras with generous rehearsals and suffer only modest interference with artistic planning. But there is always an underriding feeling that concerts and operas are being used as propaganda. Their, even their very fastidious preparation and presentation is like the Mercedes car or Deutsche Grammophon records almost a self-conscious bid for supremacy. There's a flavor of disciplined pleasure, vaguely redolent of mädchen in uniform, if you've ever seen it. Last year, um, having had these ample rehearsals with my orchestra in Stuttgart, I think I had something like nine rehearsals for a very standard program in very hot weather. And I thought I would be a very good chap and give the orchestra a day off so I announced that Thursday was to be a free day. And the uh, administration almost exploded. Um, I was told that I could not cancel rehearsals. I could start rehearsals and stop them after 30 seconds if I liked. But um, if uh, I had not used all the nine rehearsals, then next year, when they established the budget, uh, they would say, you only took um, seven rehearsals to do the last performance. Uh, why do you need nine now? So they said, please use all your rehearsals, even if you stop them immediately. It is a <coughs> slightly confusing attitude. It's a sort of freedom with um, chains on it. Uh, so, let me go to Japan. Japan is yet another enigma for a Western musician. When I first went to play there in 1957, the street signs in Tokyo were in English as well as Japanese. The women were wearing American clothes and Western symphonic music was immensely popular. Hiroshima and Nagasaki were still desolate, but the victims were embracing our culture. When I was there most recently, I was permanently lost in Tokyo, as the signs were only in Japanese. Many of the young girls had reverted to traditional dress, emperor worship was reviving, and the most successful classical music was program music. That's the explicit tone poems, works such as pictures from an exhibition by Mazorksky and Vivaldi's The Seasons. From that, one might assume that our music is a corollary for them of perceived dramatic sequences, a sort of background music to the theater of imagination. Another one of the rehearsal problems I had there was with an orchestra where out of some 28 violin players, only three were men. They were, of course, in principal positions, um, but the, um, <clears throat> the rest of the section was female and quite young. And I rehearsed quite hard the first day, but failed to communicate entirely with the violin section. And I um, asked the manager what was the problem, and uh, he said, well, um, you know, they are a little shy and they, uh, they will be better tomorrow. Tomorrow came. And still, I could not engage their attention. And I realized they would not look at me. And so I got lower and lower and lower and lower <laughs> to try to catch their eyes, because their eyes were downcast. And it was only by making a joke about it that I would actually break the habit of them not looking a man in the eyes. They are still quite conditioned to uh, the, the politeness of not outstaring you. So for a conductor whose job is uh, visual communication, this was a little tricky. 
To work in Israel with the Philharmonic Orchestra is to understand the Knesset. Every rehearsal is a debate. and multilingual, of course. If you're a conductor, you have to wait for translation of your demands or requests to reach each section before continuing with the next phrase. I think Sir Thomas Beecham's remark that orchestras are made up from disappointed soloists must have originated in Tel Aviv. <laughs> However, the projection of these cosmopolitan virtuosi is quite phenomenal. When on tour, either in, a, in Europe or America, this orchestra is a more formidable propaganda machine than the voice of Jerusalem radio. It's quite extraordinary. I think it's a pity they still refuse to play Strauss and Wagner, but perhaps the younger generation will be a little more forgiving. They'd be so good at it, too. It's now more than a year since I've been to Warsaw. I wish I could describe the atmosphere at a concert given by Western artists there. To begin with, you spend three or four days with the musicians, a breed of artists who have the traditional backgrounds equal to the Germans, plus the temperament of Italians or Israelis. They'll play their hearts out because their work is the best thing they have. And to meet the audience for the first time is devastating. They're crowded on the floor, they're in the aisles, they're around the walls and on the stage. And you're greeted with applause that may last for five or ten minutes before you've played a note. Uh, and this is a great test for the number of facial expressions you can exhibit without appearing awkward or overwhelmed. So. But, and this is a very large but, I hope it carries across the road, there is absolute silence during the, during the concert and pandemonium after it. And you know that apart from the music, they're telling you something. There are no possible restrictions on one's reaction to a concert. If you wish to censor these demonstrations, you'd have to cancel the whole affair. Sadly enough, some concerts are cancelled. The Prague Spring Festival evokes thoughts of beautiful architecture, elegant avenues, outdoor restaurants, and festive programs. In reality, you bring to a grey society a taste of something they vaguely remember and would like to have again, but have dismissed from their minds as a sort of fantasy now. The first time I conducted the Czech Philharmonic Orchestra, it had the nobility of an aristocratic institution just a little bit seedy, but seedy quality, and an optimism generated by about 30% of the orchestra being young players. I was there last time in 1980 and was horrified to see how the orchestra had aged. Not so, I was told. The young players had managed to leave for Germany and Austria, and now the Czech Philharmonic is a veteran ensemble. A few weeks ago, I was in Budapest, and I was somewhat awestruck to use the rooms where Kodai and Bartok had worked. I also played Brahms' first symphony with the orchestra and in the hall where the work had its first performance. The audience knew every note, every nuance, and our only communication was a common understanding of what happened at that first performance and what was happening now. The hundred years in between was not referred to. There's an intellectual stoicism that seems to forbid admission of the human condition outside the concert hall. And there in Budapest, it would be in the poorest taste to be too inquisitive. Where music is such an important spiritual link you treat it with great respect. Should it then be used as a vehicle to exploit the somewhat volatile social unrest? Should we read into it coded messages of protest against a particular society? 
Beethoven's music, for instance, with its sudden changes of direction, its violent accents, driving developments, and sharp contrasts, must have seemed to be a threat against the measured social and musical manners of his era. Conceivably, then, music might express, by its structure and content, the delicate relationships between the composer, the listener, the patron, and society at large. I haven't worked in either Russia or China. This oversight makes me feel rather like the unsigned copy of a popular autobiography. Uh, but somehow, neither my availability nor the inducements offered have been practical. In any case, I have sufficient contact with Russian artists or others who have made the tour to make my omission at least tolerable. But a recent article in the New York Times about the Russian composer Shostakovich and his son, Maxim, the pianist and conductor, stimulated my thoughts about the suspected social and political power of music. The writer, Edward Rothstein, cites the persecution and humiliations heaped on Prokofiev and Hadjadurian and Shostakovich. He also recalls the execution of the U Ukrainian folk poets in the 1930s. These were the almost totally blind gypsy musicians who roamed the countryside in troubadour fashion, recalling the, the past in their narrative songs. They were officially invited to a great musical convention and were promptly executed. Let me also quote briefly from Rothstein's article. <clears throat> he says, Recent regimes have found dangers in music we think of as harmless. Treason is heard in a musical dissonance, sedition in a modulation. The more tyrannical the regime, the more it seems to fear music. China, until recently, outlawed Beethoven. The Soviet Union has forbidden works by bourgeois formalists. And Nazi Germany condemned Jewish music. As far as I know, there has never been a tyranny that did not take music seriously that did not insist that music expresses ideas and that those ideas have effects on society. All of which, of course, makes us a little cautious at Orchestra Hall. When we play Mozart or Haydn, ought we to consider in our interpretations the relationship of the composer to the patron or merely accept the formal conditions for which the music was commissioned. We could easily exploit the tension of both composers in servitude. We certainly know from Mozart's letters and the political and artistic crises that he experienced. Do we then read into the music the emotional upheavals he endured, or should we just assume that his music is not autobiographical? Should we exaggerate Beethoven's rugged bourgeois individualism or play his music as just a natural development of Mozart's skills? The possibilities are endless. We could easily indulge that sigh of musical satisfaction representing middle-class yearning so closely identified with 19th century music. We could emphasize the Nietzschean philosophies of Wagner and Strauss the intellectual revolution started by Berg, Webern, and Schoenberg, the neoclassicism of Stravinsky, the positive nihilism of contemporary composers, or the nationalism of Shostakovich. From all this discursive and somewhat unfocused chatter, one of the few conclusions I can draw is a negative one. The artist's involvement in performance performance renders him almost incapable of either observing or manipulating music as a weapon. My experience in America during the last 20 years certainly confirms this. Perhaps com folk com composers here present the strongest national idiom. From Ives and Ruggles through Copeland and Virgil Thompson to Del Tredici and Cage. 
all assert here the lack of threat in the comparatively amiable history of America so far. Well, how we deal with these and other reflections on the effect of nationality, politics, and social revolutions on music, or maybe it's the other way around, you can only truly hear if you'll be so good as to cross the road to Orchestra Hall anytime. Thank you. We'll disconnect you momentarily. Thank you, Mr. Mariner, for that, for your obviously having done your homework and for that uh, splendid biographical and world tour. We're going to take a moment now to permit those who must leave to do so and also to permit those of you who have questions to send them to the aisles. They'll be picked up and we'll address them as uh, promptly as we possibly can. So let us take a moment for both of those exercises and let me simply remind our radio audience that this program is emanating from Westminster Church in downtown Minneapolis and that this is the first in our new series of Thursday noon forums conducted under the overarching theme of voices of conscience key issues in ethical perspective and now we'll uh, we'll just take a moment and wait for those who must leave to do so and to begin to to deal with some of the questions. While we're sort of getting our act together here, let allow me to pose a, a question, Mr. Mariner. I indicated earlier that, and we talked briefly on the way in, of my own interest in your, in St. Martin's in the Field, that church and your relation to, uh, to it with your program there. Could you I fill us in on that a little bit? This one? Yes, please. I think, um, there's always been a great deal of confusion about uh, our, how we belong to the Church of St. Martin in the Field. I know that many of my friends in America have been bitterly disappointed to discover that when they go to St. Martin in the Fields, uh, we're not there. <laughs> the, the church, as you know, is not in the fields. It probably was in the 16th century, but uh, it's now in the middle of Trafalgar Square, the fields having somewhat been overbuilt. Um, but uh, the music director of that church was an old friend of mine, and when some 21 years ago we decided we wanted to have a, a chamber orchestra just for our own amusement, we rehearsed in our drawing room at home and we spent hours in any room where there was uh, enough space to fit us in but when it came to giving concerts we had nowhere to go and uh, the music director Jack Churchill who as I say was at St. Martin in the field said why not give a concert when the service is over there are always a few people left left over there the stray dog and people who have come here to keep warm uh, and so we said, right, we'll uh, organize a series of six concerts there, thinking that they would be our first and last concerts. Because at that time we had no name. We didn't want to call ourselves an orchestra because we were too small. And we didn't want to call ourselves an ensemble or a chamber orchestra because it was too restrictive, we thought. And so the, the vicar of the church there, a man called Austin Williams, uh, said, well, during the 16th and 17th century, around this part in London, there used to be academies of everything. There were academies of literature, of science, of medicine, and of music. And it was used as a sort of collective noun in those days. It wasn't a building, an institution. It was just a club. And so we adopted the name Academy and tacked onto it uh, where it was we were playing, St. Martin in the Fields. Again, it's not the sort of title that you would uh, readily choose because it's like a funny thing happened to me on the way to the circus you know it's one of those titles that you never think will take on but uh, in fact after that series of six concerts the title stuck and we stuck 
And uh, there was a time when we thought of changing the name to something a little more respectable, but um, somehow the record companies by that time had issued one or two gramophone records and said we mustn't interfere with the market. So, uh, we celebrated our 21st birthday quite recently. 21st? Mm. Yes. One question from the uh, people gathered here. Is there a distinction between the works chosen for performance in East and West Germany and the attitude toward the performances? Not really. I would say the only distinction happens in contemporary music that um, in East Germany they are very much influenced by Russian thinking uh, on what is the function of contemporary music. In West Germany, uh, particularly in Berlin, which is in the heart of East Germany, as you know, um, you almost lean over backwards to, to play the most outrageous music you can uh, to demonstrate that you are uh, fully up to date. Um, but um, I would say that traditionally the basic German audience still um, appreciates the same literature. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <coughs> uh, this one hones right in. Does an opinion expressed in a newspaper music critic's column regarding your performance influence your next performance? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, usually adversely. Um, uh, uh, there is a time when you're uh, quite young and, and insecure where you need two things. You need a very good manager, and at that time, because uh, your fees are so low, no manager is very interested in you, uh, and you need good reviews. Uh, because, strangely enough, these do influence managements. It's, it's a sort of advertising that, that you very much need. Um, later in life, uh, you don't need a manager quite so much, um, but that's a time when you are commanding higher fees and they are desperately interested then in their 20% of whatever it is. Uh, but uh, as far as reviews are concerned, they cannot really damage your career. They can damage your ego a little bit. I mean, everyone would like to read nice things about themselves in the newspapers. I know that Joseph Cripps used to say uh, there were two kinds of conductor. One um, who always read his reviews and had the newspapers delivered at 8 o'clock in the morning and one who never ever read his reviews and had them delivered at 7 o'clock. Uh, I think that uh, no one can resist actually uh, reading about the performance but it does in some cases make you rather perverse and uh, you either try to do the same again, or you even try to do it with knobs on. You know, you try to do it uh, more uh, extravagantly than you did the first time. <laughs> As a citizen of the world, the next question, where do you find your musical home? Well, there's no doubt that in America I breathe very easily. Um, and I've often pondered this uh, because the um, orchestral life here is much more rigidly com controlled than it is, for instance, in England. Uh, the unions here are stronger, and the restrictions on uh, rehearsal times are considerably tighter. But I would say that um, I now feel as if this is where my musical home is. There are strange overtones in being a an Englishman that, I don't know if it's the same, I suppose it is the same in every country, that uh, being a foreigner is better. You, um, to be an Englishman in England, if you are in uh, the entertainment world, is less interesting than being a Hungarian or an American or a German. Um, and therefore there are certain advantages, of course, to being an Englishman in America. You're a little bit foreign and uh, because of the funny way that you talk or uh, just the fact that you, you are a little bit closer to Europe. I think also some of the discomfort I have is that my French is passable, my German is terrible, my Japanese is non-existent of course, and so it's, you, sometimes you suffer these nightmare feelings of I'm sure we all have them, of getting up on stage to play a part, to play an instrument, to do something, 
that you know you know nothing at all about. And to go into the Berlin Philharmonic rehearsal not being able to speak fluently their language is a considerable drawback. So again, to be able to speak English here is a great relief. <laughs> what does the threatened closing of the Minnesota Dance Theater have to say about the financial and general state of the arts in the Twin Cities? The whole funding question, I gather. Well, this came as a, a shock to me to hear that, that um, any one of them was so close to um, finality. I've always known, long before I came to live here, that uh, this was perhaps one of the most rewarding communities to work in if you're an artist of any description. Uh, you have perhaps some of the most enlightened uh, underwriting of your artistic ventures here of anywhere in the world. So that to hear one of them uh, was staggering, uh, was surprising. I'm not surprised that it happens to be the dance company. That perhaps is the hardest working and uh, the most f financially volatile of any of the arts. But I'm pretty certain that uh, this community won't let it disappear. I think there is enough support here for a, a last-ditch stand to be uh, allowed to make a triumphant return of the dance company. Thank you. What are the responsibilities of an orchestra to play new music? Considerable. Um, I would say you've been reading press notices. That's, uh, the, the press, as you know, uh, are always very hard on us if we uh, have conservative programming. Now, it's, it's, it's not a difficult problem. They understand the problem, but they, of course, as they earn their living by uh, writing in newspapers and like to have controversial subjects, this is a very easy one. We, uh, as musicians, feel we should expose the audience to what's going on in music now. This is part of our responsibility. But um, you have to make quite sure that the basis on which people come to concerts continues. In other words, they come at the end of a day's work wanting more than anything to be pleased rather than challenged. It depends which day you come. If you come on Saturday or Sunday, you're ready to be challenged, but if you come on Wednesday, having to be at the office at 7 o'clock in the morning on Thursday, the challenge is inappropriate, I think. And so, we have to very carefully judge the temperature and the mood of our audience. This year, for instance, we have comparatively conservative programs, and the uh, subscriptions for the concerts are overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly good. There's no doubt that we will begin to sneak in uh, a few more challenging pieces of repertoire next season, but only carefully observing at the same time uh, that we do not turn away uh, our most devoted subscribers. You can cheat a little bit by having a, a second series of concerts probably given in, in a, a hall this size rather than in a two and a half thousand seating hall uh, where devotees of contemporary music could in fact enjoy it. And I think the best aspect of that is for them to come and see it actually being prepared. I think the rehearsals for contemporary music are just as interesting as the performances. And I hope that we're going to be able to, to find some format and some budget, of course, uh, to do this quite soon. Thank you. Is it just a job for most musicians, American, or are they truly a dedicated group? Describe their attitude. <laughs> well, I think that um, nobody would take up music as a profession. It's such an idiotic profession, really, uh, unless they felt some dedication. Every one of us, I think, has something to say. Everybody in this room feels that underneath the skin they have a message to convey. Just what happens is that many of us neither have the aptitude nor develop the ability to convey this message. Musicians from the age of three or four begin 
to develop a skill on an instrument. And if they're good at it, then they have something to say. And I think the burning years for you are between, well, I suppose, the age of 17 and 30, when you really feel uh, that you must go out and deliver your message all the time. There comes a moment when, for economic reasons, because you have a family, uh, you suddenly have to have a secure job. You then join a symphony orchestra, for instance, and you become a small part, a one-hundredth part, of an instrument. Now this takes away quite a lot of your individual responsibility and perhaps reduces a lot of the enthusiasm you had to begin with. But I would say in orchestra hall when the orchestra plays and they, they're really feeling united as an instrument, in other words when the conductor is good enough and when the soloist is good enough to fully engage them in the music then they are equally uh, animated as musicians as they were in their early years. Perhaps this would be a, a good moment to comment that uh, one of the two gentlemen screening our uh, questions uh, this noon is a Mr. Cloyd Williams who's been clarinetist with the uh, Minnesota Orchestra for over 30 years and interestingly enough is uh, related to the, one of the founding families of this congregation 125 years ago. So we're glad he's with us. How would you characterize American cultural response to music and concert performance? I would say it's average. Um, there is a sort of pretty well accepted figure that 1% of the, uh, the community is interested in classical music, for instance. This is worldwide. You get one or two variations, but this is the average thing. So that in a, a city of a million people, you have, I suppose that is 10,000 people who are interested in classical music, and probably half of them would make the effort to go to a concert. And I think this, this is fairly standard uh, for America. In large metropolitan centers uh, like New York and Chicago, perhaps uh, the stimulus is a little greater. But um, I find here, because of the enormous ethnic cross-mix that you have, it varies a little more than that. For instance, I always found Los Angeles, when I was there, a little bit disappointed because that is a very large Jewish community which has come from, from Europe in the last 50 years. And I would have expected more uh, interest in, in music there. But of course, as all things Californian, uh, everything tends to seem to be filtered by the sun. I don't know what happens, but uh, uh, it's, it's not quite the intensity I would have expected. Here, for instance, uh, one is very much aware of a North German, Scandinavian uh, tradition, and I suppose that many of your uh, forebears brought their cultural expectations with them. So that... Um, you are perhaps a notch above average. Um, I think if you could go through all American cities and uh, going th towards their ethnic backgrounds, you could estimate that they're very similar to uh, what their forebears are even today in Europe. Perhaps this question uh, from the uh, group, I keep wanting to say congregation, I guess I should say, uh, <laughs> this audience is, what do you consider your greatest challenge in becoming music director of the Minnesota Orchestra? Well, hmm. Thank you very much for that question. <laughs> Every morning when I get to Orchestra Hall, I'm presented with what I think is my greatest challenge. Uh, most of them are diplomatic ones, but I think I would like the orchestra to be the most perfect musical instrument that, uh, in America, in Europe, anywhere. But when you are dealing with a hundred people, it is a very, very slow process. Um, and the personalities involved are permanently changing. And so it's a very elusive objective to find a perfect orchestra. You find something like Chicago, for instance, who have 
have been through a period of, of great success. But suddenly you realize when you're working with the Chicago Orchestra that they're pretty old. And are you ever going to be able to replace the orchestra with comparable musicians? And because time is coming, maybe in the next 10 years, when there'll be an enormous turnover of personnel in the Chicago Orchestra, these things do slip away from you. I suppose the greatest challenge for me is, first of all, to make sure that it's as good as it's always been, and perhaps to be able to work a little bit at uh, polishing the instrument so that uh, wherever we go in the world, we will be accepted among the peer orchestras of the world. I would love to be able to take the orchestra to Berlin or to London or to Amsterdam and meet their orchestras face to face and toe to toe mm -hmm. and come away, uh, well, probably with a few points above them. <laughs> mm. <laughs> That might be a good point to stop, but we do have a few minutes to go, so let's try to treat a few remaining questions. Back to, to the dollars. In view of current budgetary cutbacks, what do you see as the future of the arts in this country? Well, again, um, you are not quite as healthily supported by um, government grants as European organizations, similar organizations. But you have in each of the communities, and certainly the ones that I work in in America, a remarkable number of responsible people who have become financially successful, economically secure. And it's, it's really they who are making it possible for uh, all the cultural activities to here to stay at such a high level. I think the extraordinary thing is that many of them the very rich people who give us grants uh, and dollars and cents don't even feel enormously drawn towards music themselves. But there is a responsibility that they would like all these resources to be available to their children. They'd like their families to grow up in a city that has a gallery, uh, a theater, a symphony orchestra, a chamber orchestra, a dance company. They feel that this is their responsibility. They're able to do it, to provide these things, and they want their children and their grandchildren to grow up with these things av available, even if they never go near them. It gives a certain quality to your environment, which otherwise you would not have. So I'm very optimistic. I think that this responsibility will always continue. Oh, good. Well, I think we'll stop our questions at that point, and uh, I'll make a couple of announcements if I can. But first of all, to thank you for this very warm and, and generous and uh, lively sharing of, of your person and of your profession and your insights. It's been a, a very fine time together. Thank you. <laughs> mm -hmm.